All right, so it is uh, Sunday, January 6, 2019. Come on now. Wow. 2019. You can't rock like it's 1999 anymore. 20 years past Prince declarative statement. Our message this morning is double-edged family sword. Uh, I was inspired as John was sharing the other night. What an amazing message. John's got a unique delivery, doesn't he? Yes. He pauses just long enough for you to breathe, and as you exhale, he punches you in the diaphragm. Uh, I want to tell you up front how proud we are of this church. Uh, I felt victory during worship. Did you feel that? Look, people that are looking for a reason to be angry and offended will always find it. There's a lot of offensive stuff in the world. But when we come in here, we see an awful lot of good things in here, don't we? Man, I love that. In this first Sunday of the year, uh, I wanted to tell you that we are going to do something that is a little different. We're going to extend John's message, but also... We are next week going to start a series called Band of Survivors. Amen. During that message, we're going to focus on the things that the Lord told us were ahead of us this year. We're going to focus on what it takes to accomplish those things. We're going to have a lot of fun, and the pastors are going to handle that series. It'll be amazing. You all look forward to that? This morning, what we want to do is we want to bless this house by getting our priorities in order for that blessing. Does that make sense? Like every once in a while, turn of the new year is a good time. We just, we want to shake off the dust a little bit, rearrange the house and make sure we're not tripping over things that we shouldn't trip over. Does that sound like a plan? So who's ready to get in the word? Let's go to number six, verse 22 together. Amen. Somebody say there when you get there. I'm there. Rob's there. I can hear it. All right. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. So we want to remind you this morning, when you think about Aaron and his sons and the Israelites, this is a familial relationship that these priests were taken in place of a firstborn, that this is a family much like ours. Do you want to bless your family this morning? Do you want to be a blessing? We're going to get there. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. Amen. When you're thinking about this ironic blessing or this priestly blessing, it's important to know that only Aaron's sons were allowed to speak this blessing. This was not something that an average Israelite could say. It was only for the Kohanim, only for the priest. There, to this day, are very strict protocols among Orthodox Jews regarding the proper way to give the blessing, the proper way to receive the blessing, everything from how you're supposed to hold your hands as you're pronouncing it to where your eyes are supposed to be when you're receiving it. We're going to set that aside for a minute today. We're not going to get into those difficulties This morning, we want to look at it in a different light. Let me show you our first slide this morning, because I think it's beautiful. When you're looking at the phrase, may the uh, Lord lift up his face towards you, or this is make his countenance shine on you. The Hebrew there has to do with lifting up. The idea is a father 
lifting up his son. If the father's standing over the son looking down, he's casting a shadow. This is the father elevating the son. The blessing of the priest was supposed to elevate the son. Watch, just as Judah does this. This provides us of a picture that a father would hold up his young child in joy. Look at this. And that God would cause his face to shine upon you. This is Judah having the light from there reflected on him and back to the sun. Isn't that what we want? Yeah, we want that in our lives. It's interesting because the results of this blessing. Let's go to that next one. In our Bibles, it says that he will be gracious to you. Have you heard that in Hebrew, it's written in consonants, right? It's a really interesting thing. Even in English, when you're reading a sentence, if you remove the vowels, most of the time you can infer them and keep reading it. I don't know if you've seen that exercise done. Well, a good friend, y'all say hello to to Ohad. Ohad's over here. Wave, Ohad. Ohad. Ohad has been consistently correcting me about my Hebrew. And the only thing that makes me happier is when he's correcting Justin. And it's good because Ohad is an Israelite from the Golan Heights and he was helping us with this. When we read this, the root word is Chana, just like uh, Peyton's wife. And of course that means grace. But the way that Moses wrote this was without vowels. The vowels were added later, the little points and, and, and dots and lines to help you pronounce it. As it was originally written in the text, when you read those consonants, it can mean he will teach you. It can also mean he will pardon you. It can also mean he will be a father to you. All three words are possible. And to that I say, yes. Isn't that what his grace does? His grace teaches you to say no to sin. His grace causes you to be pardoned from sin. And his grace allows you to be in relationship with him so that he is a father causing you to mature. Isn't that what we want? When the Lord turns his face to you, he is gracious to you. He pardons you. He teaches you. Somebody say, "He he is a father. He is a father. To me. To me. Isn't it a beautiful concept? This is a passage that all of us have heard, read in church, maybe even had a few hymns that had it in it. But the word's a 70-sided jewel. The deeper that you look, the more meaning and content that is there. As you begin to think about how this affects our life, this is like a father taking you. He is taking the time to lift you up so that something can shine on your face, so that you might be matured and there be a blessing in your life. See, this reminds us of Luke 15. You guys will be familiar with this story. We're going to pick up in the 20th verse. Amen. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Say it with me. He was watching. He was watching. His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Mm. See, this image is heartwarming. And it's been heartwarming for thousands of years to millions of people all over the world. We all love that the father goes on to bless the son. He gives him a robe, a ring, sandals, and then throws a feast afterwards. Of course, the story ends in verse 32 with the lost brother having been found. Yeah. 
The real question, though, is what happens next? See, we focus so often in church on the lost brother being found. We focus so often on the forgiveness of the Lord that his blood heals you, that his blood uh, saves you. We focus constantly on what the gospel does for you. Is that true or not? The question is, what would happen next in the story? Where would the story go? With that in mind, I want you to remember that this lost son had literally been sleeping with the pigs. And now he is back in right order with the Lord. And the question is, what comes next? How many of you are saved in here? Give a shout of hallelujah. Now, is that a shout like you've been saved from eternal hellfire? Or is that a shout like, dear God, I still need coffee? Have you been saved in here? The question then is saved unto what? When the father puts the robe on you, puts the ring on you, puts the sandals on you. What for? What is it that you go on to do? I think we find that answer in Revelation 1 and beginning in verse 5. So tell me that you're there when you're there. Help a brother out this morning. There we go. Come on now. Where you at, Rob? It's the last book in the Bible, man. Where you at? Come on. Rick, you there? Cody? Help, help him, Wendy. Help him. Be his easer. All right. So in Revelation 1 and verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. Man, did he faithfully witness the Father? Yes. The firstborn from among the dead, the first in all the human race to receive a glorified body. How cool is that? And the uh, ruler of the kings of the earth. No argument there, huh? So far, we're so good. Everybody gets that. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. How much do you love that statement? Are you freed because of the sacrifice of Jesus? Freed from the penalty of your sin. Freed from the bondage of your sin. Able to walk in the freedom of the Spirit. Is that you? And has made us to be a kingdom and priest. To serve his God and Father. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. If he's freed us from sin by his blood. And he's giving us a kingdom. Then what are we supposed to become? What does the passage say? You are supposed to become a priest. Now the kingdom is only made up of priests. There is no job as a janitor. There is no job as a garbage man. There's no job as a neurosurgeon. The kingdom is made up of something. It's made up of priests. When do we become priests? When does that happen? It's a good question. Are you priests now? Are you priests of the living God? We're going to begin to look at how we walk out our function. If you're priest, it's important to know what you do, right? Let's pick up in chapter 5 of Revelation. We're going to look at the ninth verse. And they sang a new song. You're worthy to take the scroll. We just sang about this. Isn't he worthy today, saints? Yes. And to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. Oh, amen. From all over the world, he has purchased men who are to become priests. And he paid a bloody cost for that. He laid down his life 
Not just so that we could be taken back into the Father's arms, so that after being taken in, we could become something. Men who are operating under the blood of the Lamb as a kingdom of priests. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on earth. Not out in heaven. We're going to reign on this earth. You are priest. So what has he made you to be? What has he made you to do? When we think about a Hebrew function, when you have a name, there's something behind that. It's not just a a name that is anonymous. It has something to do with it. A whole kingdom made up of priests. Shouldn't you know what it means to be a priest? Shouldn't you know what it means to be a priest with the tools? You know what I mean? Like Linton, Linton is a architect or an engineer and a designer. Yeah. He's got a certain set of tools over there that I don't have any idea how to use. He's got graph paper. He's got stencils. JJ, JJ is a manager or a salesman, but he's also a capable carpenter. He's got a saw. He's got a hammer. He's got a few things in his shed that I'm sure Linton doesn't. Do you know the tools of the trade that you were made for? We're going to learn a little bit more about what it means to be a priest and what tools are going to be in your two belt. Lucas, we're moving forward through this message, and of course we're going to start in the Torah. We're going to start in the Tanakh. Understand something. Name out some occupations. Your occupation here. Call it out. Louder. Look, I heard property manager. I heard teacher. I heard contractor. I know there's electricians in here. There's engineers in here. There are all kind of amazing occupations in here. But you're a priest before you're an electrician. You are a priest before you're a roofer. You're a priest before you're a contractor. To be in the kingdom, you have to become something. And we have to know what it is that we're becoming before we know how to function in life. Let's go to Exodus 32. When you discover that chapter, land on the 27th verse and say, I'm there, pastor. Oh, the brother's fast. Amen, amen, y'all are waking up, huh? It's going to be a good day. Look at your neighbor say it's going to be a good day. It's going to be a good day. In Exodus 32, verse 27, Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, Each man strap a sword. What are we going to do? Strap a sword. Strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. Man, that feels like an odd statement to be in the Word of God, doesn't it? The Levites did as Moses commanded, and about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, you have been set apart today for the Lord. Let me read that correctly. You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has... Blessed you this day. You may not think of that as a blessing, but by the end of the message, you will understand why it is a blessing. It's important for us to remember here that the Israelites have been covered by the blood of the Lamb. They walked through that water and were baptized as they're coming to this point. We're not just speaking about the Levites, we're speaking about the community. We're speaking about believers in this day. Say believers with me. Believers. So we're not going to put this in some other category. This is not the Amalekites. This is not the Moabites. This is believers. When you're thinking about it being believers, understand then what is happening. The community is a believing community, but they've slipped into idolatry. 
They're actually worshiping a calf, but that's not what they say they're doing. They say that they are worshiping the Lord. Now, that seems unthinkable, but it occurs in our lives all of the time. The Levites were chosen because in the midst of others drifting, they strapped a sword to their side. They valued the word and the will of God more than any other relationship. More than their brothers. Say brothers. Brothers. More than their friends. Say friends. Friends. And more than their neighbors. That's a great deal of value on the word of God, isn't it? And we're all called to it. Saints, this is the primary criteria for a priest. This is what it means to take a stand inside of your home and be the priest of your home. This is what it means to be a kingdom of priests who leads in nations and sets the example for what Christ is like inside of darkness. Would you have thought that the first tool of a priest would be a sword? No. Somebody answer me. No? See, we're going to have to put out of our mind the image of a priest that is some effeminate male wearing a clerical collar. These are men. (laughs) When they became priests, they did it by strapping a sword to their side. Say strap a sword. Strap a sword. When you're talking about this, maybe one of the best passages to go to is probably Deuteronomy 33. Say there when you were there. About Levi, he said, your Thummim and Urmim belonged to the man you favored. You tested him at Massa. You contended with him at the waters of Meribah. He said of his father and mother, I have no regard for them. He did not recognize his brothers or acknowledge his own children, but he watched over your word and he guarded your covenant. You say watched over your word, watched over all of us as Bible believing spirit filled Christians. We say that we watch the word, that we listen to it, that we read it and we try to apply it to our way of life. See, but there comes a day when you're tested and you find out whether or not you have been watching over the word. You find out whether or not you have your sword strapped to your side or if it's somewhere else. The Levites were tested in this day and found to be priest of the almighty. And the way that they were tested was, how did they respond when their sons, when their daughters, when their mothers, their brothers, the people around them that they were attached to were called into question. Would you stand with the Lord when it was difficult? Would you stand with the Lord when your whole family won't, when they're trying to tear you away? See, that's what makes priests. It's when they're for the Lord before anything else. You know, all of us at times are given bitter waters to drink. I can't tell you how difficult it was to watch one of my sons injured by another one. I don't know how to tell you how difficult it is to watch my sons go out and do street ministry till four in the morning and then wreck a car later. All of the parental wisdom is coming out of me at that point. Hey, you have to sleep more. You have to do this. I had no idea the way, though. That the Lord was developing something in my sons. He was taking the bitter waters of Meribah and he was turning them into something that was sweet. And I was actually standing in the way and had no idea that it was happening. The role of a priest is to side with God before any man. And the real problem is two men can both believe they've heard from God. Verse 10. He teaches. Who teaches? He. The priest. He. He teaches your precepts to Jacob and your law to Israel. 
He offers incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. Let's put this into perspective. Anybody have a car that's newer than mine? Mine was manufactured the same year Gabriel was manufactured. In the year 2001. So who's got a newer car than that in here? You know what? Let's offer it to the Lord today. A whole offering by fire. You don't get to keep one lug nut. You don't get to keep what the change in the ashtray. Let's burn it up. How senseless is that? How, what a wanton waste of such talent and such resource. That's because you don't know what the Lord will do with that kind of dedication. See, it is literally burned up. Nobody gets to follow it and say, how was it spent? Nobody gets to track it down and get a a giving statement at the end of the year for a tax return. It literally was just consumed before the Lord. Say whole burnt offering. See, the whole burnt offering is what Levi brings. He holds nothing back for himself. He holds nothing back for anyone else. This requires the removal of our expectations for what is offered to the Lord. You don't get to keep any of it. Say, I'm not going to keep it. I'm not going to keep it. Verse 11 says, bless all his skills. Can I tell you that you can be a priest and an unskilled priest? I, I am a priest of God, but I'm having to grow in my skills every day. Am I the only one that can jump to a conclusion? Am I the only one that hears something and infers the very worst, even though it wasn't meant? Am I the only one in the room that is called to represent God, but often does not represent him well? See, we have to grow in our skill set. That's why we're looking at the priesthood today. Oh, Lord, and be pleased with the work of his hands. The ultimate goal is that the Lord is pleased with the work product of your life. Is that your goal? Yes. That ought to be the goal of every man, woman, and child in this room. Look at the curse that Moses pronounces next. Smite the loins. That's not nice to say, is it? No. If you're waiting for that, oh, look, we have it cleaned up here, right? Here in the 2011 comic book version of the Bible, it says strike down those. That's because the 2011 does not believe you're mature enough to say God is saying curb stomp their genitals. He doesn't believe that you're mature enough to understand that. But it is what is being expressed. Why on earth would a man of God say if somebody rises up against the priest, may their reproductive organs be hammered in a terrible way? Why would he say that? You might be thinking of a James Bond movie right now. I don't know what's going on. Be glad that you're sitting in padded chairs. The, the whole point of this smite the loins, though, is of those who rise up against him, meaning the Levites, and strike his foes till they rise no more. See, the Levites had no regard for the others in comparison with God's word. And that's something that God wants to multiply on the earth. He wants to stop the reproduction of those that have a disregard for God. And he wants to increase the reproduction of those that regard his word above every other thing. It'd be easy to wonder why God has such fierce statements about how he's going to respond to those who are in opposition to the priesthood. And it's because this is a fight. 
This is a war. This is not something that is easy for the priest. It's not easy for God's people. Making those sacrifices is not something that was done lightly. It's something that was a bloody offering that meant something. And they were opposed. I want you to consider a few priests just from history. So we have Phinehas. Phinehas is a priest before God who has another outstanding covenant made that is for generations. It's not just for him. How did he get that covenant? He took a spear in his hand and was filled with zeal for God. And he removed wickedness from his people, his family, and his covenant. Wow. By any means necessary. And he did it with Israelites who were in the presence of God. And felt themselves safe, comfortable, and as believers. So when we're considering these things, we need to stop putting this off or somewhere else. We're speaking about priests in this house and our family in the presence of God. They didn't tolerate that kind of sin. That they were more zealous for the honor of God than for men's honor. They chose the Lord over their Israelite brothers. Mm. Beniah. Beniah is somebody that we've spoken about a lot. I named one of my sons Beniah. Beniah was the son of a priest. Do you know what that makes him? A priest. Yeah. Beniah struck down false leaders. He cut up people who opposed the one true king. And he did it while they were clinging to the altar with their hands on it, screaming. For some reason, we seem to think that everything is black and white and cartoonish. That bad guys are always going to look like this and the good guys are always going to look like this. See, the only thing that is clear, true, and black and white in this day is the word of God. And it is what can make things black and white for us. Benaiah, as the priest of God of his kingdom, as a servant of the one true king, he went into the temple and he cut up those that were in opposition to Christ's reign or David's reign in that time. Yeah. And he was honored for it. Yeah. Jehoiada, another priest just from the history of Israel. Jehoiada deposed a false leader. She, she decided that she was now God's ordained leader. And wow. she voiced it. She said it. She said, I, I'm, I'm called to be an authority here. We've never seen a woman who decided that she's an authority when she wasn't. Hmm? We've never seen that kind of spirit working in the world before, working in churches or in families. Not amongst our godly girls. Jehoiada fought to make a boy named Joash, king. Fought to make a boy. You know how hard that must be to stand and say that this child is called to be king? But he knew that God had ordained him. See, being a priest is a bloody process. It's a hard process. The reason you have a sword is because you're actually out there working and fighting for your family and fighting for the corporate family that you have because the king that must be established, it's worth dying and laying down your life for. That woman, she was struck down inside of the temple courts. Yet again, wickedness was sitting inside of the house of righteousness. We must be careful as priests of the living God to first clear our own eyes, clear our own hearts, and then be able to see with righteous eyes and stand with that sword to watch and guard the word and strap a sword to our sides. Come on. Somebody say, strap that sword on. on. See, the sword has two edges. It first has to deal with your heart before it deals with anyone else's heart. And the reason for that is the priesthood is responsible for not only teaching but displaying righteousness primarily to the body of believers. That's, that's the point. The priesthood is ministering to the rest of the Israelites. So it's not fair in our thoughts and in our minds to say, oh, well, these guys were good and these guys were bad. You can be a believer and have an unbelieving moment, can't you? Yeah. 
That unbelieving moment can turn into weeks, months, or years if you're not careful. And at some point, you're no longer a believer. And see, the whole point is that the priest is using that sword to delineate between your believing and unbelieving moments. That's the point. In fact, when you start thinking about our reproductive center, I know you were hoping I was going to get back to that, right? <laughs> like my wife's on the front row going, no, don't do it. No, we're going to do it. Curbs One up. of the things that you have to consider is what is coming from your life, be it physical offspring or spiritual offspring, is it something that is solely for the Lord or do you have embedded expectations about what must be done with that? Are your reproductive desires based on fulfilling something for you or fulfilling something for the Lord? That is paramount. It's paramount with every disciple that you make. It's paramount with every child that you have. It is paramount with every relationship that you have. Because a priest looks to the interest of the Lord before he looks to any other interest. Can you say amen to that? Be careful because amen means so be it. And God will require this of you. Let's consider the words of Jesus. We're going to look at Matthew 10 and the 34th verse. Say there when you're there. There. See, I beat y'all because I have it printed right here. I have it printed in size 14 font where I can read it without glasses. I'm a grandfather now. I got three of them already here, two of them about to Perez and break out. (laughs) Yeah? Come on, Wendy. Sasha, little fruitful vines. You there? Do not suppose I have come to bring peace to the earth. Now, why does he say do not suppose? (laughs) It's because we suppose. We assume that we know what he wants to do. He says, do not suppose that I came to bring peace to this earth. I did not come to bring peace. Just in case you didn't hear him the first time, he said it again. But a sword. What did he come to bring? A sword. The king of kings. The great high priest of all creation did not come to bring peace upon this earth, but he came to bring a sword. Our great high priest is watching over his word right now. And he is bringing a sword to this earth because he is cleansing, because he is purifying, because he cares what his bride looks like. That's good news for us if we want to stand with him. If we're trying to ride the middle line and get by with what we can, that's really bad news. Our great high priest is zealous like Phinehas. He's willing to stand. He's willing to fight like Beniah and Jehoiada. Our great high priest is just like the men that stood back in the days of Moses and became great high priest. So what is it that you think is required of you? Are you called to bring peace? Are you called to bring a sword? See, and the sword that you bring ultimately will put the world at peace. The sword is the word of God. We even misunderstand this at Christmas time. We sing peace on earth and goodwill to men. That is not what that verse actually says. It actually says peace to men of good will. In other words, peace comes as the Lord's face shines upon you. It comes as he is your father and he is directing your steps. But that is not the natural state of our existence, is it? Man, the fastest way to keep you from wanting to do something is to say, hey, do it now. Isn't it? Even if it is a right thing to be done, something in our nature says, no, no, I'm not going to. I have my own self-assertion. I have my own desires. And all about the kingdom 
is setting that aside and letting God's spirit and God's word direct you. That's what a priest does. He sets, he dies to his self assertion, his own will. Look in verse 35. This is so shocking that you've probably read over it without thinking about it. Verse 35. For I have come to turn. Let's stop for a minute. Jesus Christ is the I there. Jesus Christ has come to turn. What, What does that mean? Part of Jesus' ministry, specifically to a body of believing Jews. He said, no, no, the Jewish nation wasn't believing. How did you get your Bible then? See, they are in covenant with God. Sons of God, bought by the blood of the Lamb, baptized in the Red Sea, following the leading of the cloud by day, the fire by night, and eating spiritual food from heaven. The problem is not that no one believed, it's that they didn't persist in their belief. They became stiff-necked and unwilling, and by they I mean some portion of them, became unwilling to follow what God was doing now. Do you know what wars against what God is doing now? What you think he should be doing. See, we develop a plan that says we will serve the Lord and here is our expected outcome of serving the Lord. But the moment that it starts to look different, we say it's not God and run off in some other direction. For I have come to turn a man against his father. How on earth could you say something like that? A child and a father, that is the very bond that we're supposed to be learning from. The father in heaven and us. How could you say that? Because there is an inherent tension between a father and a son. A father imposes God's will on that son until the day that the son is to hear from God himself. And see, not every father would agree with what God was telling their sons. I know this firsthand. When I named him prophetically, I believed that God gave me his name, but I was also sure that he would be a praise and worship leader. Can I tell you? That was not right. I named Gabriel the messenger, the one sent, because I believed he was the preacher. Now, just in God's sense of humor, this one preaches and that one leads worship. Can I tell you, you can be in the right ballpark, but on the wrong road? This doesn't mean that as fathers we're blind and we have no direction. It means that we know in part, we prophesy in part. At the one association meeting, pastors who had no idea who many of you are walked right up to me. One of them looked at this young man, Timo, on the front row and he goes, who is that? And I'm like, could you be more specific? There's 400 people here. And Justin Johnson said, come on, man. And he said, it's, it's the young black kid over there. I said, again, could you be more specific? He said, the kid in the blue jean jacket. I said, oh, that's Timo. I knew who he was talking about the whole time. I'm just picking on Justin because he's from Louisiana. (laughs) He looked right at me and he said, that kid was born to lead worship. And the world desires to have him. And he has to be protected from the world. He said, do you mind if I go tell him that? I said, no, I don't mind, but everybody's going to assume I told you to go tell him that. He said, don't worry about what people think. And he walked over and told him that. Now, what happens if I had not conceived of that? I mean, and I'm telling you, I'd never given it any thought. What happens if what you think God is going to do with your children is only partially right? I remember when the Vincents were 
absolutely adamant that their son was supposed to do A, B, C, D, E. Because they're Vincents, they went all the way through Z, man, with the steps. But what that means is it leaves no room for God to move him through steps. What if they're in the right ballpark, but they didn't get every detail right? Jesus Christ said his ministry would turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He threw a gimme in there because all daughter-in-laws and mother-in-laws have problems, you know? A, a man's enemy will be the members of his, not our daughter-in-laws. No. Amazing. Where you at, Steph? Smiley? Yeah, see, it's amazing. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Can, can you acknowledge how much that hurts? Yes. How difficult that, on both sides of the coin? No father wakes up and says, today I'd like to get in the way of God with my child. But I'm going to tell you the truth. My parents were believers and they did it. Okay? It is a very normal thing. To be staring at someone, raising them, sure that you know all about them and miss something that God has for them. This happens in two directions. How many times does a teenager think their parents don't know anything? Yeah, quick, get a job, move out while you still know everything, teenager. They're surprised when God uses their parent. See... Sometimes our familiar bonds actually get in the way, which is why we have to be more bonded to the Word and Spirit of God than to our own families, as, as uh, awkward as that may seem. See, you can't excuse this passage as having referred to the lost. These people are in covenant with God, but they're being stiff-necked in this situation. They're unwilling to be led by Him, while I'm sure all of the time they're saying they're following Him. Because that's what Christians do when they're not doing well. They claim to be following the Lord while kicking against everything that the Lord established. And I'm not talking about someone else. I'm talking about me. I am in covenant with men and I love them. Except when they're correcting me. And then I'm like, I love you. And, you know, you could have done this this way. And why didn't you do it that way? And I'm trying to mitigate the correction because something in the human heart wants to be good already without any real work. The first place the gospel brings a sword is the family. The priesthood is established inside of a home. And if you cannot work when God is doing something with your own children that you don't understand, how can you do it with somebody else's children? See, the proving grounds for a priesthood is in the home. We've been discussing the progressive nature of salvation together a lot. And I can tell you in my own personal life and testimony that I was spirit-filled, that I saw people get healed, walk, uh, miracles that are not... I had a headache and it felt better, like a physical, creative miracle right in front of us. I had previously spoken numerous times to three, four hundred pastors, and I had to get radically born again. See, this is not a one-time event. These Jews were believers, and some chose to continue with the progressive revelation of God. And when the Messiah appeared, followed him, and others did not. I want you to consider what might be stopping these mothers, these fathers, the things that the scripture is speaking about dividing families. Perhaps they had career goals for their children. Maybe they wanted them to be math teachers or judges. Or maybe they just really wanted them to get a degree. And that that degree and piece of paper was everything. And 
all along this road, they, they had experiences with the Lord, but they had developed their own plan for their life. They had developed their own plan for their children's lives and how they think that it should turn out and look. Yeah. See, we never do that, do we? Of course as, we do. As spirit-filled believers, we have never started to think in our own mind about how we think this should look in the future and then get attached to it. I tell you, I've done that personally many times. So have I. It hurts to remove it, but we have to remove it. The only way for us to continue is through progressive salvation. So that means that nobody in here is exempt. Every one of you has life ahead of you, whether you're single and getting married, married and having children, or seeing your children grow up into adulthood. We have a responsibility to continue to take that sword, kill our own plans for our life, and submit to the direction God is going with us and those that are entrusted to us. It's so true. Maybe in wanting the best for their children, they were eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil all over again. They had been born again and radically saved. They forsook all for Christ. But now that it comes time for their children, they're relying on worldly wisdom. They're relying on their own ability to make choices by taking that fruit and eating of it again instead of putting it back in the hands of God. You know, it's, it's not that hard to do. Um, when Jennifer and I got married, I was sure that she needed to complete school. The reason that I was sure of that is, number one, she had a desire to do it. And we'd been told every moment of our lives that we would be abject failures if we didn't. Uh, somehow or another, people have gotten the idea that I'm anti-school or anti-education. I physically supported my own wife for three and a half years in school. I took Judah to visit colleges Believing that God might send him to one. But ultimately, that happened to not be God's will for them. And they were to be a priest before they were anything else. Now, I don't know what God will do with your child, but I want to submit to you that you might not know either. And if you let fear creep in your life at this moment, you might not have room to trust God by the time you've stacked 18 years of assumptions on top of that. God is the only good father. My predictions, my assumptions, my expectations turned out to compete with God's will all the while I was trying to hear from God. Do you know how many times somebody has come to me and been concerned? Like, look, there's a teenager that uh, we love and they're part of our family and they're going to come to the church. But man, the way that your teenagers are, I just... um, I mean, it's going to be shocking to them, like ease them in slowly. Yeah, they get filled with the Holy Ghost in my kitchen. That's what happens. Hey, 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 Eric, the thing is, is you guys are like some kind of Christian barbarians. And I don't know. I don't know if the international community is going to get this. Yeah, they, they visit once and then they stay for 12 weeks while they learn what we're learning. We do not need to tame what God is doing. No. We, we need to stop putting limitations on what God is doing. If I was anti-education, then how does Assad hold a job? See, I am all for you going to college as long as you're a priest before you do that. I have no problem with your chosen occupation as long as you're a priest before you do that. You, the idea that somehow or another the priesthood holds people back is insane. You're at war with the wrong thing. And the reason I'm preaching this right now to you is, look, we have children in here, some that are still in utero, 
and some that are in children's church and some that are sitting with us and they'll be adults before you know it. I'm a 44-year-old grandfather of five. It happens quickly, friends. And the years that you spend investing in something other than their priesthood only make it all the harder when God does this. The sword cuts deeply. But it's possible that you miss this next part. And I don't want you to, and it pains me to read it. But remember, I didn't say it. Yeshua did. This is verse 37. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Come on, saints. This, this can be difficult to swallow. It is difficult. Any attachment that you have that takes any precedence over the will of God takes a spiritual believer who's sitting in this room and makes you not worthy. We don't want to be unworthy, do we? No. We're not going to stay unworthy, are we? No. Do you want to be worthy in the house of God? Yes. We're going to be worthy together. We're going to take our stand. We're going to lay aside all other attachments. We're going to stand for the King of Kings. We're going to make our attachment, our allegiance, our pledge to him. Today, we are going to take our stand and our God will call us worthy in his sight. We will take up that cross and see resurrection power work through our lives and work through the men and women that are around us. Hey, raise up your hands and surrender for a moment. Let's pray. Mighty God, we are asking you, Lord, to let us raise up a kingdom of priests. Lord, adjust us, adjust our expectations that we would not miss you. Lord, we repent for putting our expectations before your own. Mighty God, we're saying help us with this, that your sword would pierce our hearts, that we might rightly handle it and not misuse the things of God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. It should be our prayer that that sword of God will cut our hearts first. That it will pierce us and cause us to see rightly. So that we are able to be ministers and representatives of him. If we watch that word and strap it to our sides, we are armed with everything that we need. That we're not lacking, we're not insufficient, that Paul is the priest that he is called to be, that Tom is the priest that he's called to be, that Gabriel Arius is the priest that he's called to be. When we are strapped with the word of God and we are watching the word, guarding the word, guarding the covenant that we have, we are armed with what we need. Say strapped. Strapped. Do you want your sword? Yes. Yes. Do you want to guard the word? Yes. Then we're going to be priest of the Almighty today. Are you going to leave your Bible on the back dash of your car? Are you going to leave it tucked away in the bookcase? No. Better yet, are you going to leave it in your chair when you walk out of this church? No. You have to be putting it in your heart and it has to cut your heart before you apply it to any other person. It is the word of God. I have to tell you the truth. The word breaks me to pieces daily. It shows me what we're capable of that's amazing, but it also shows me what we're capable of that is not amazing, that is altogether wicked. You need the sharpness of the Word of God to attack your heart before you ever begin to apply it to other people. The truth is, one year ago this month, we preached a message. Actually, no pastor did it. It was our disciples called the Talmudim series. And from the moment that that series was preached... 
dissension started to swirl in our body. Some became jealous of the men that were preaching and said, oh, you know, the pastors give them all of their attention and we're a forgotten class. Others began to secretly worry, if this is true, what does it mean about our children? Because I want my child to become such and such. And they are saying that the primary thing you're raising a child for is to be a priest of God. And from that moment forward, it is swirled under the surface and we want to bring it to an end. In case you think we've begun to stretch the truth about these people being believers, you've heard all of your life that these are those that rejected Jesus. These were unbelievers. I I actually want to turn to Luke 2 and show you that this is a problem among believers. When you get to Luke 2, find verse 34. Are all of you there? Look, we've only for like 40 minutes and we're starting to get to something good. That's faster than normal, huh? <laughs> Luke two thirty four. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Is Mary a believer? Well, Mary has just been overshadowed by the very presence of the Almighty. The angel called her highly favored when speaking on God's behalf. When is it that she becomes an unbeliever? And how is it that a sword pierces her heart? See, as a parent, she heard the prophecies, but she couldn't begin to understand what God was going to do with her son. And it pierced her heart to see him carry out the father's word above her own will. You can think of many times she's like, Jesus, there's no wine. Woman, why do you involve me? See, she had desires for him and she knew that he was called of God, but she had no idea How that would manifest itself. Her own heart would be stabbed by the word of God. But that's not the end of Mary's life. No. In Mark 3, Mary's continuing to struggle. But not just Mary, the rest of the family. said, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For he said, he is out of his mind. Are you kidding me? This is Jesus Christ. They're speaking about Jesus. The one who is led by the Father and only does the Father's will. Saints, I want to remind you of that time when you first got born again. I remember when Abambola first came into the church. And that fire and that zeal that was inside of his eyes. When you got born again, people thought you were out of your mind, didn't they? If nobody thought you were out of your mind, you may not be born again in this room. It happens. When you get in the mind of Christ, the natural mind no longer makes sense. But the same people who had supernatural experiences, who stood with the Lord and wanted God's will, even when it looked horrible to the rest of the world. She said, let it be unto me as you have said. And the rest of the world considered her a prostitute or an adulterer. That's how she entered into the story. That's godly, huh? She stood for what the Spirit wanted. But yet somehow in our lives, we allow... That happened for us. And then we come to the place where in someone else's life, in this stage in our life or in our children, that we're not willing to let them struggle through it. We're not willing to let them 
be out of their minds for Christ. See, Jesus is going through what he is called to go through, but it's just like the other believers except perfected. Each of us have got to go through those stages where the whole world is turning upside down because of what is changing inside of us. But we cannot cease to recognize it in other people. We can't alleviate that situation because it's what formed who we are. It's what forms the callings that you have. Watching your family turn aside from you. Having trouble at work. John gave his testimony on Wednesday and was explaining the things that he went through. It is a necessary part of this process. This is the same Mary that all generations will call blessed. Yeah. This is the same Mary that said, may it be unto me as you have said. What is wrong now? Her goals for her son are different than God's goals. A righteous woman has fallen into this category because of assumptions and staying attached to something that God did not say. We are going to have to watch the word and strap on a sword to our side. If that is true about her, it can definitely be true about each of us in this room. Strap a sword on your side. Watch the word and what the word says and what God has spoken, not what we have added to it or our own preferences. Is Mary the only godly person that's ever looked and said, I don't understand this and I'm going to have to to step in and fix this now? Or do you have those same kind of problems? See, we all do. This is a warning to us and it's why that sword has two edges. The first one must strike your own heart. And if it doesn't, you end up mad at everybody who's just trying to do God's will. See, but if it strikes your own heart first, the first thing that occurs to you is, I may not be right. And you end up in a soft place. Now, I'm going to tell you, Mary and the brothers aren't there yet. Look at Mark 3, 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Do you really think Jesus didn't know? Do you think he didn't love them? See, he's making a point as to where his family allegiance actually lies. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Look, their unbelief in the moment put them on the outside of the circle. But do you know what's amazing? They don't stay there. Mary ends up at the foot of the cross. Mary ends up in the upper room being filled with the Holy Ghost. Jesus' brother Yaakov, that we sometimes call James, mistakenly writes a book of the Bible. So does Judah, that we call Jude. They didn't stay in this position. They just didn't understand. Friends, can I tell you, sometimes you're not going to understand, but that's what the sword does. See, we all know Mary was at the foot of the cross. We know she was in the upper room. She was a believer, but Jesus is emphatically clear. His familial allegiance was to the word and the word alone. Nothing in this whole world is harder than raising a teenager, even a godly one. Yeah, amen. How can there only be one amen for that? Your kids are still too young. Wait till you find out you're responsible for their every action. And they're like the book of Judges. They do what is fit in their own eyes. And sometimes it's beautiful. And other times it's horrifically bad. And you're waiting for the great Davidic king of Israel to come and be their king. But you can't make it happen. See, that is what it is to raise a teenager. I hope that doesn't frighten those of you that have little ones. Look, put them in a safety deposit box now and pick them up when they're 20. (laughs) In Luke 2, we have a description of Jesus 
in between the manger and the cross. He's not quite a man, but he's still the perfect son of God and he's growing. And you get to see an example of what this interaction should look like. It's in the 45th verse. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. They lost the son of God. After three days, they found him <laughs> in the temple courts. Makes me feel every be- a little bit better every once in a while while we're parenting. We're still figuring this thing out. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? (laughs) The question that she asked is, son, why have you treated us like this? There is an assumed wrong here. There is already an offense that is rooted, and there's the ones that left him. Is it a responsibility of a parent to keep children with them, or is it the responsibility of the child to keep the parent with them? How does this work? Somebody talk to me. Do you keep your kids with you in Walmart? How could you have done this to us? I left you, and now you are here speaking to the rabbis. This... That this really is an insight into our own hearts, though, if we're honest. Like, yeah. when something's going on that we don't understand, we typically blame the person. And then if that doesn't quite work, we blame whoever they were hanging out with, whoever they were asking questions from, whoever they were teaching. Yeah. We see this on a regular basis. This church is called to make disciples. And these disciples are becoming pillars in the house of God who manage business as well and raise godly families and witness as they work. It's also raising fivefold ministers. And it is a natural, not a godly, but a natural response where we begin to assume that some wrong has been done to us because there is an interaction that is going on outside of us. It's even worse than that. To be honest, I not only had a mother, but I've been married to a mother for a very long time. And, and Judas got a perfect Young wife, Cody's got a perfect young wife. Brandon's got a perfect young wife. Um, You have to picture a Jewish mother here. This is a guilt trip. (laughs) How could you do this to me? You don't love your own mother is implied in it. He's not doing anything except chasing after the father's will. But the mother feels personally injured by that. She's literally pushing him away and then blaming him for the distance. Come on, ladies. Let's hear Jesus' response. Mary gets it right by the end of this. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? He was watching his father's word. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then they went down to Nazareth with them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Come on, my God, that's the right response. There are things that we do not understand, that we're not sure what God is doing in the moment. Sometimes as charismatics, we act like we've heard from God every couple days. The reality is that you feel like you're hearing from God, and maybe a couple times in your life, he's actually spoken to you. We are standing in the will of God, and our guides are the power of the Spirit and the Word. She didn't fully understand what was happening here, but she put her faith back in the Lord. She trusted that whatever was happening was a treasure. It was precious. How do you view the things that are not quite your plans, but are precious in the Lord's sight? See, we're going to, as priest of God, reflect his emotions. 
We're going to begin to view what he thinks is precious in our own lives, in our own hearts, and in the people and the children that have been entrusted to us. Because if God decided that this was something that was precious, it may have taken them a little while to get it. But once they did, they didn't let go of it. Come on, JJ's a man that I know he's not going to let go of the precious things that God has given his children. You are not men and women who are going to let that go. But we have to actively choose to treasure what God chooses. It doesn't happen on our own. We have an evil inclination. It is so easy to see the difficulty as something that's abnormal. But the reality is, it's, it's not abnormal. It's a cycle everyone goes through. Uh, for a young man or a young woman to begin to hear from God themselves, they're going to make a lot of mistakes. But don't act like you don't make mistakes. Or that your mistakes didn't help you get here. We believe that for those who are called, who love the Lord, that He works in all things for their benefit. We believe that. And while it's understandable to need to pray and contemplate something... You know what you must never do? You must never cross the line and end up attacking the priesthood. See, the result should be that we treasure what God is doing in our heart, showing faith in Him, not being ruled by fear. See, fear makes you attack the people around you that you think are responsible for what's happening. And of course, it's never, never your fault. Can you feel what I'm saying here? Look, there are so many things in the Word that speak to parenting. Judah, take us through a few of those. Let's consider some examples in the Bible, but not as a story, not as a text. You, as a parent, if you're not a parent, think of your niece, think of your nephew. We want you to actually consider this like it was your son or your daughter. How about putting your son in the Nile in Exodus 2? That... You trust God and you're watching his word enough to literally set your newborn baby in a basket and set it in a crocodile infested river. I've been there. That thing is not nice. It's not it's not a nice flowing stream to set them in certain death because you have been watching the word of God enough to where you trust that this is going to work out. And if you could find the faith to do that, who would believe that the guy next to you was doing right when he did it? Well, how about sacrificing Isaac on Moriah in Genesis 22? In what godly parenting book would you see that that was even a possibility? How about Hannah giving up Samuel to a priesthood that she knew to be defective? If you're waiting for a perfect pastorate, you won't find that until the millennial reign. And Hannah put her son in the hands of a priesthood that was known To be defective. And we honor her for it. Can you imagine if Hosea was your father? (laughs) Or if you're Hosea having to explain to your son what you're called to do. What your family is about and where you came from. See, he was watching God's word and he strapped a sword to his side. None of these things were easy. They were difficult. We're not saying that doing this with your children, doing this with your family is an easy process. We're saying that you're priest of God and you're capable of it. That you can do it. That you can rise to the occasion. That the more you arm yourself with the things that men of old have and with the things that Christ has in store for us, you are capable to withstand whatever God's plan is. And more than that, support them and let God's light shine through it, just like the ironic blessing. While they're not easy, 
they are acts of faith that must accompany the faithful. Luke 14 says exactly the same thing that Matthew 10 says. But instead of love more than, it says you must hate your mother and father. You're like, what? And it means in respect to your love for the word of God and the ministry of Jesus Christ. He goes on immediately after that in Luke 14 to say, if you're going to build the tower... You count the cost or you'll start to build and not be able to finish it. This is the warning before you came into Christ. See, we're teaching you something and to you it may feel like, man, that's a difficult word. Who can accept it? You were supposed to understand this before you ever said yes to Jesus. Your children don't belong to you. Your spouse doesn't belong to you. Nothing in your life is yours, not even your life itself. And so when we find ourselves wanting to negotiate it, it shows We have an unfaithful place in our hearts. We have to correct it. Just to throw out a few more examples. Let's think about Isaiah, who in Isaiah 20 had to walk around naked. Can you imagine God speaking that to your child, to your family member? These were difficult things to work through, but they had to trust the Lord. In Ezekiel, he had to lay on his side for 390 days and then for 40 (laughs) and then shaved his head with a sword, not a razor, a sword. Okay, now you just, you got a picture. Uh, mamas, raise your hands. If you're a mama in the room, raise your Okay, so you go to your kid's house and you're like, what are you doing laying on the ground? You're supposed to have a job. <laughs> no, the Lord told me to lay on my side for more than a year. Boy, you crazy. Get up and go to work. But the Lord told Ezekiel that. Then you come back the next time and you're like, but you had such beautiful hair. I mean, why did you cut off? You used a sword? My God, what's wrong with you? And he says, look, before you leave, uh, I have some food that I'm going to cook for you. But don't worry. I had a whole conversation with God over the excrement that I'm going to cook this food over. And it's going to be over a cow, not human excrement. Would you not think that this man was insane? Well, he had parents. Look. Obeying the voice of the Spirit is a difficult thing for anybody. We should be glad that we're trying, though, huh? What if you're the parents of Jeremiah? And the word that he gets from the Lord in chapter 25 is destruction, captivity. It's going to last 70 years. (laughs) And that your son never has anything to say besides you're all going into destruction, captivity. This is bad. This is bad. You're all going to be burned. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Don't do it. And then they put them in stocks. And, oh, my poor baby, you, you should have learned your lesson. And then they try and kill him. And all of these things are taking place. And yet he is standing by the word that God gave him. And it came to pass. How about King David? Not only is he not considered by his father or mother for uh, the potential anointing of Samuel, but then what would it be like to be his parents and there's this giant that nobody in Israel will face and in 1 Samuel 17, he goes down to face him. What is Jesse thinking at that moment? My God, I'm going to lose my son. More than that, what is Jesse's wife thinking at that moment? Do you think maybe in Psalm 27 when David is writing and says, Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. He knew what it was to have God lead him in a different direction than his parents. 
Now, let's contemplate this for a minute. Does that make Jesse and Mrs. Jesse, Jesse's girl, uh, does, it, does, it make, does it make them bad people? No, they're actually presented as amazing people in the scripture. You can be an outstanding believer and have serious problems with what you expect God to do for you. The sword is supposed to separate the unhealthy expectations we've attached to something from what God actually said. We could go on like this forever and ever. Which of the guys in Hebrews 11 do you hope your son turns out to be? Each of these men, like Gideon, Barak, Samson, we hear about the prophets. These are all great stories, but nobody wants to volunteer their own kid for it. <laughs> you know what I mean? That You want to send your child off to war when the... Numbers on the other side are 5, 10, 15 fold. See, we have got to start to take these things from being a relic from the past and realize that God is calling martyrs out of this room. And some of them will be your own sons. Our church is not going to just stay here. We're going to expand here spiritually, reaching out, and we're going to send sons and daughters that are going to lay down their life for nations. Four peoples, because they were all purchased. And at some point, we have to make our peace with that, because that is the direction that we are going if we're going to stay in the kingdom. Remember when we read in Revelation, He is worthy? He is worthy. I want to encourage you, in your soul, remind yourself. He is worthy. You know, the men we read about in Hebrews 11, they're not exactly popular. No. The word says tortured, jeered, flogged, imprisoned, stoned, sawed in two, killed with the sword, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. Who in the world dreams for that for their child? But you do want them to be people of faith, don't you? What you may not have understood is you cannot be a person of faith without those things accompanying your life. It's time. It's time that we take off our American dad goggles. We want the perspective of our father. And our father laid down his son for you. We're not American dads anymore. We're priests of our home. We reflect our father in heaven. How much do you trust in the sovereignty of God in your own family? We have to really start to consider this with sobering reality. You know, you have to be careful that you don't make the very blessings of God that he has given you into idols that offend him. Now, I want to sit on that statement for a minute. I've seen more people pray for a baby and then make that baby an idol that offends God. I've seen more people pray for a spouse and then make that spouse an idol that offends God. More people pray for a house and then make the house an idol that offends God. More people pray for a job and then make the job the idol that offends God. What we're talking about is getting these things in the right order. And see, you can't do that without taking the sword and applying it to your heart before any other place. But if you'll do that, It'll take you to a place like Joshua 5. Y'all turn there. Joshua 5, 13th verse. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for the Lord? Neither, he replied. (laughs) But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Where do your loyalties lie? Where does your allegiance lie? When men are pulling at you, when the world is pulling at you, and everything wants you to put your support somewhere, are you for the Lord or are you for men? Mm. Are you for the Lord and His people? Are you for whatever is convenient that month? See, we've got 
to move on from getting steamed for about three months and remind ourselves that I have a sword that God has given me and my loyalties are with him and with his people and those who serve him with righteousness. As we move on in Joshua, he falls down to the ground with reverence and he asks him, what is the message that you have for me? And that's the right answer. We must let go of that fear that our expected outcome is not going to succeed. We need to just let go of it entirely and say that I want the Lord's outcome. And it's easier said than done. But you see, Joshua's response here is his assumption is that you must be for somebody and you work for some king. But when he realizes that the plan of God is not for any man or king, it's for himself and we join it, he falls on his face and he gets it right. So many times we see something in terms of, is it this or is it that? And there's so many options that you never even could consider. Fear enters and it makes us unfaithful. We are priests. Our obligation is to God's plan. And it's not for you or against your enemy. It's for God. What are you raising your kids for? What are you raising disciples for? The God's honest truth is some are scared in this church because you know what we're encouraging you to raise them for. And it's the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't mean that somebody can't be a beautician. It doesn't mean that Avambola can't be an engineer. It means that's not anywhere near all they are. It means that Keith is an attorney, but he's a priest a long time before he's an attorney. And that is the priority. That's the priority of our identifier above our race, above our nationality, above our family name, above anything else. The blood of Jesus Christ bought me as a priest. And the kingdom is only made of priests. You are being made into a kingdom of priests. As priests of God, we share in Christ's characteristics His way of doing things. I want to tell you that in Revelation 1, the 16th verse, it says that a sharp sword is coming out of his mouth. And in the same passage, it says that his brilliance, his light, it's going to shine upon us. We've got to strap that word of God, that written and what he speaks to our sides today. We've got to guard that word. We have to watch that word because it is coming out of his mouth. He is speaking and he is moving. We just have to grab hold of it today. Revelation makes the point that it has two sides to it. Not every sword in the ancient world had two sides. The writer wants you to understand that the word of God is a two-sided sword and that it gets inserted into your family before anything else. Is that clear to you guys now? We're going to leave that alone at this point then. And I want to move on to something else. Judges 7 contains such a familiar story that I'm going to cite the verse for you. In the 20th verse, the people say, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. This is an order of priorities. Your sword is first. The word of God for you first is for the Lord. And second, it is for the men of God that you are following. Now, the reason that that is so important is if it's not first for the Lord... You end up killing your leaders anytime anything doesn't go right. But if it's first for the Lord and you want his will before anything else, then you follow the Lord and you follow the men that you believe God is leading. A sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon. That is something that we're building here. There is some fear that's floated around. I want you to know that I profit nothing in this world from discipling any of your children. 
Nothing. What I hope to profit is in the world to come. And it's not as if we have no track record of success. We're able to look into somebody's life and see potential. The highest honor of my life is when other men help disciple mine. We need to not be insecure about this. I've never known a better man than Bosch, but he asked me to disciple his son. That wasn't an insult to Bosch. He took it as an honor. Do you think Zebedee was offended that his two sons went with Jesus? That's a joke. That's a joke. This happens when you're invested in a particular outcome and you're scared you're not going to get it. We need to use the sword of the Word of God and cut that right out of our hearts. As you turn to Ephesians 6, about the 17th verse, you need to consider, if you wanted to be discipled here because you saw something that you want to reflect, yeah. is that not more so in your children? Or do you want them to have less than you did? If you examine this ministry and you look at the sons and daughter of Wade Sutherland, you look at the children of Matthew, if you look at the children that have come from this family, as flawed as we are, if you look at the pastors and the elders that have come from this, and you have no interest in replicating that in your children and in your own personal life, then why are you here? I mean... We'll just be honest and serious about this for a moment. If you don't like what the families here have produced, the pastors and disciples and elders that have come from it, you don't want to be one of those things, then there's no reason to be here. If you do want it, then there's no reason to give this a half measure. If this is what you're here for, then be here. Don't be with us halfway. We're not looking for half-hearted companions. We're looking for those who are sold out for the kingdom, who are sold out for the gospel, who on all occasions are looking to bring their sword and watch the word of God. In Ephesians 6, the 17th verse, it says, Take the helmet of salvation and the word of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the saints. I'm sorry, I didn't hear in there where it said we're allowed to drop our sword. No, it didn't tell me when I had to stop watching the word. I tell you from personal experience that men, you compartmentalize things. You go to work and you think, all right, I'm going to be led by the spirit. I'm looking to witness when I walk into church, I want to give somebody a word. And then you walk in your house and you just want to sit down. We are priests that are on duty at all times. Amen. We are soldiers who do not leave our post. We're going to strap that sword on. And when we walk in, drive division out of our families, drive division out of our children. And watch the word of God and let it foster. And the more that you do that, you'll find that your wife, that your children actually become the best aid that you've ever had in your life. That you cannot do what you're called to do without them. But when we're part-time priests, when we're not praying in the spirit on occasions, but just when we need something, you do not see the same fruit and you can toil at it for 20 years. What you want is to see the kingdom breaking out in your family. That is all of our goals. But what that requires is that we be all in to this ministry. We be all in to the ministry that he's called you to. It's time that we stop with half measures and that we choose I'm in or I'm out because the dividing word of God will split you one way or another. We're seeing those things happen and praying that men stand on the right side. Where do you stand today? Where do you choose to stand? Where are you at here right now? Are you all in or are you 80? Are you 50? Are you 40? It's time that you make your decision because the Lord will bless you choosing him. But he will not bless a lukewarm attitude towards what he's calling you to. 
Take your stand. Strap your sword. Watch the word that he's given you and trust that it will be completed. We're in our very last scripture now. And it's not my desire to confuse the homiletic because the word is a double-edged sword. It's also a mirror. And if you woke up this morning and you looked in your mirror and you were offended with the mirror for what you saw, you're chuckling. People do this every day with the Word of God. They're offended with what the Word of God shows them about themselves. But they know better than to say that. So they get offended with the frame of the mirror. The man who's holding the Word of God, showing it to them. That's, it's easier to blame the messenger than the message. Because you can claim to agree with the message in principle and the problem is the messenger. I'm just agreeing with you up front. Yes, we're terribly flawed. And the Word of God is not. And we are working to imitate the priest that we see in Psalm 45. Those of you that are struggling with feelings like you just can't rise to the occasion, that you don't have what it takes to pursue it, where we're going with this and is going to become apparent is that there is something that will come to your aid. Psalm 45, third verse. Gird your sword upon your side, O mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously in behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness. Let your right hand display awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. The priesthood was anointed with the sacred oil of God. But it's because they love righteousness and they hated wickedness. Their swords were at their side. And the result was not a life ruled by what God would do for them. It was not ruled by their expectations. It was ruled by the word of God and they learned to love what the word loves and hate what the word hates. See, that is what a priesthood is. We've come to a place where we're going to close. And I want to invite Abambola to close as the worship team comes to the stage. Could you all stand to your feet? Joy, could you put Matthew 20, starting at verse 20 on the screen, please. It says, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked him, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You do not know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. There are so many times in relation to the word that we just heard, so many times where we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, I want to be great in your kingdom. Lord, I want my children to be great in your kingdom. And the son of Zebedee's mother is asking that. Lord, let them sit at your right and your left. 
This is come from, from, from her perspective, this is coming from a pure place. And his response to her is, you don't know what you're asking. Just, just think about that. See, Jesus is not concerned about our plans for our lives. He's not concerned about our plans for our children's lives. He's completely concerned about the Father's will for your life. Amen. And he doesn't even address that. You know what he says? Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Wasn't that the question to each and every single one of us right before we got born again? And what was our answer? What was our answer? Whether you're six months in the faith, five years, decades in the faith, you have to consistently, continually ask yourself, can I drink the same cup that Jesus drank out of? And it's so easy to say yes in the moment. Yes, Lord, I will. But how often do we start to let things creep in of our expectations for our own lives and the lives of our family? See, in Proverbs 3, picking up in verse 5, it says, Trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. See, our understanding if we're thinking of how our lives are supposed to look like, contradicts his plan for your life. See, when he asked that question to John and James, we know them as the sons of Zebedee, right? Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? And their answer was yes, just like your answer was yes. Completely different from what their mother had planned. Are we not grateful that although John had to suffer to be on the island of Patmos to receive the revelation of God that we read from, has that not blessed your life? We have to be willing to let the sword of the word of God cut us first, cut our expectations away, cut our fears, cut our anxiety from our lives and say, Father, I want your will no matter the cost. Give me the same cup that you drank out of. See, I'm preaching about my own life. And I love that the word of the Lord is cutting me. See, we don't move forward without laying on those expectations and say, Lord, I want to drink the same cup no matter what it costs. You can't be on fire for the Lord and born again and not expect that for your children. Not expect that for those that are in your family. If it's good enough for you, it's good enough for them. And so when I pray, if you've had expectations for your life, and I know you have because I've had some in my life as well, for the life of your children, different, contradictory to what God actually said or what's to do with their lives, you need to repent. And when you repent, it's not words. It's turning and going after the action that God wants for you. See, like the sons of Zebedee, who was zealous for the Lord, called the sons of thunder. They said yes. And I'm encouraging LCM. Yes, we can drink the same cup from the Lord. Are you ready to drink that cup, LCM? Father, we thank you. Jesus, for such a timely word. Father, we're asking that may your word cut us first. Lord, it's it's double-sided. Father, we're asking, let it cut us first, Jesus. Father, let we, let's lay down every ambition that is not of you. Father, every fear, every, every expectation, Lord God, every plan, every desire that is not of you. Father, would you allow us to drink the same cup that you drank out of? Father, would you forgive us, Lord, for having embedded assumptions that we're stacked against your plan? 
Father, cut us with your word that we might be renewed in your presence, that we might take up our shield and we might take up the sword of your word, Lord, to be the priest that you died for, the the priest that you paid a price for. Father, we say, come, rush in like a mighty wind into this place. Cut our hearts, Lord God, that we might be radiant in your presence.